Well, as Mary mentioned, over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at world religions, doing sort of a series based on different questions. And what I'm really interested in there over those weeks is not just in what those world religions say, but in how they do or don't connect with us, how ethical culture sees its roots in some of those religions, and where we see places that ethical culture has really diverged and gone a different way. As some of you know, ethical culture itself was founded in 1876 as a new religious and educational and philosophic movement But it wasn't founded out of nowhere. None of us exist out of nowhere. And in fact, Felix Adler, who founded Ethical Culture in 1876, did so partly because of study that he had taken part in of world religions, which was really a new field in the mid-late 19th century, that, um, that Western folks were having the chance to study world religions more broadly than Judaism or uh, Christianity. Adler himself came from Jewish roots, and I think we often see that in ethical culture. And of course, West members come from all kinds of roots and find all kinds of influences. You heard about the Buddhism group that's meeting right after Platform. I know folks who were raised in Christian communities and Jewish communities in Muslim communities and in no kind of religious community at all who come to West. And so part of our work together is to unpack what that means for us, both individually and collectively, to make meaning as a community and to do that work of distinguishing ourselves and connecting ourselves at the same time. So over the course of those three weeks, I'm looking at some big questions, and and each question is really geared toward a topic. So today, as you know, we're looking at human nature, at the idea of what, what human nature is like. Next week, we'll be looking at transcendence in different uh, world religions and in ethical culture. And on the third week, we'll be talking about ethical choices, moral choices, and, and how we make those choices. Now, we could do about a million more. Um, something on ceremonies and something on grief and something on forgiveness, but we needed a place to start, and I thought three weeks was about the attention span of the average American, so that's, that's where we're starting from. And starting our very first one with, with human nature, with how world religions and how ethical culture looks at human nature, makes a lot of sense, I think, for us as humanists, partly because we are grounded in human experience, We're grounded in human hopes and human work. And also because the view of human nature is particularly important to the religious framework. It's a view of who we as humans are, how we see ourselves, and how we see each other. And, and I'll get to this at the very end this morning, I think that view of human nature has important implications for public policy. How we see human beings connects with the questions about whether or not we trust people, whether we see people as trying basically to be good and needing support to get there, or whether we see people or some people, categories of people, as essentially bad and needing limits. So that idea of how we view human nature is really important both to who we are as religious people, as philosophical thinkers, and to who we are out in the world and how we shape the world around us. 
The other reason it's important, I think, for us to start with human nature is because our understanding, ethical culture's understanding of human nature is in many ways revolutionary. I have taught the last couple of years a class about humanism and world religions, and for the folks here who were in that class, uh, you can just consider yourselves experts already before the platform. When I teach that class, I start with the idea of what, what's humanism, you know, what does that mean? Humanism as a thought, as a movement, and we have lots of conversation and get a whole big list up there about what we think humanism is. As you can imagine, there are different answers. We often start with lots of what humanism is not. But, but eventually we get to what it is. And the thing that, that we tend to center around is that idea that unifies the humanist tradition and the many kinds of humanism around the world is a view of human nature. An idea that every human being has inherent worth. In ethical culture, we talk about affirming that worth, really ascribing it to a human being, whether or not we necessarily see it there. In many ways, this is our leap of faith. You know, the definition of faith is believing in something that you cannot see. We can't always see the worth in another human being, but we believe it about them. We affirm it in them, and we try to act as though that is true that faith in the potential for human goodness. So one question as we look at world religions is, are we the only ones who think that? Is that entirely the, you know, what, 110 people in this room or in other ethical societies around the country, or are there other folks across the world that have had that same idea? And I'd like to explore that just a little bit. I want to thank, by the way, our sound folks and our ushers who have been working on the temperature in this room as we're all getting comfortable with the spring air and finding different ways. So thank you very much for adjusting that as we go through. So first of all, let's take a look at what world religions we're talking about anyway. There are a lot of religions in the world. We're not actually going to talk about all of them. Frequently, when people talk about world religions, they really are talking about what some people call the big three, although in numbers, they're not the big three at all, but the Abrahamic traditions, traditions that find Abraham as sort of a founding figure within the tradition, and that's Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Those three traditions share a lot of stories, uh, share some of their history, and really are often seen as kind of tying together. And here in America, and in the West uh, more generally, we sometimes see those as the world religions, those big three. If we look at size alone across the world, though, we really need to have some more significant conversation about Buddhism and Hinduism, not part of the Abrahamic three, but huge and vastly important religions within the world, and in the case of Hinduism in particular, um, ancient religions. So what do those religions say about human nature? For this particular week, we're going to be concentrating on Christianity and Judaism. I'll talk briefly about Islam and Buddhism. But we're going to concentrate on Christianity and Judaism partly because, for those of us within a Western framework, those are the traditions that we most frequently interact with when we think about human nature. Those are kind of the ideas that I think get stuck in our head and run around in our culture. Other weeks, and especially next week, we'll be concentrating more on Eastern religions, so be patient. So let's start with Christianity, because I think for many of us, that's where we begin when we think about views of human nature. And Christianity does not always have a great reputation for views about human nature. 
A tenet of, of Orthodox Christianity is the idea of original sin, the idea that humanity as a whole is depraved or fallen and requires a savior to bring it back into right relationship. And so we start by looking at some of the origins of that story, how folks talk about it, into the original creation story from the Garden of Eden. And that's a story that my guess is I don't need to review for many of you, but I will anyway, just in case, right? We've got Adam and Eve in the garden. There's a snake. There's a tree. Um, Eve, obviously, generally Eve's fault. She gets the apple. She tempts, well, the snake tempts Eve. Eve tempts Adam. And... They're out flat, uh, gone from the garden and out into the world. That's the basic idea of the story, and certainly I think the one that we have often running as a tape through our heads, what we think of when we think about the creation story. And for many folks, the kind of injury to insult for people who consider themselves perhaps rationalists or lovers of knowledge, that fall from grace, the the apple that's eaten... of course, it actually wasn't an apple. There weren't really apples, but we'll gloss over that. We all think it's an apple in America, so that's fine. The apple that was eaten, the tree that it came from, was the tree of knowledge. So that fall came because Adam and Eve hoped for knowledge. But is that the only view in Christianity? You know, when we talk about Christianity, sometimes we have this sense that somewhere there is uh, Christianity. And, uh, and of course, really, Christianity has existed over a couple of thousand years in many different forms. There's a great cartoon, I'm not even sure where I saw it, but that um, uh, maybe someone posted on Facebook where there's a, a kind of ancestry tree of, of Christianity, and there's a group of people, they're looking at this ancestry tree, and, and it starts, right, with the life of Jesus, and then it starts to branch out, and it branches out more and more, and more and more and more, and more and more, and you have all of the kinds of sects that, that now exist within the Christian world, and, um, and the people around the table are saying, and right here, they're over at the edge, right? So there's, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of sects. Right here, this is where we got the message right. (laughs) It was posted by one of my progressive religious friends uh, with something like a tagline that said, uh, you know, here's why I don't believe in sectarianism. So, so Christianity is really all of those things, you know, and it's, and it's this original story, which is so far ago and, and so differently documented that we can't even really understand it. What we do know is that there isn't even one creation story. That story of the Garden of Eden is only one of two stories about creation in the Hebrew Bible, and so therefore two stories about creation that Christianity uh, can draw from and has drawn from over the, the millennia. It's not unusual to have multiple stories in the Bible. It's a document created over thousands of years with multiple authors and editors. And usually there's really interesting work where you can kind of pull out which stories were written at about the same time and why and what sort of culture they arose from. So we know we have the Garden of Eden story. In that story, humankind is made from dust, but with the breath of God, the ruach, and we'll get to that a little bit later. In that story, from that story, we talk sometimes about the idea of humans being from dust to dust, ashes to ashes. There's a sense of kind of humans as, um, as really made of the stuff of earth, right, and, and needing God to become anything. And then we see that again with the fall, humans as depraved and needing, needing a savior, needing God to be made whole. 
But there's another story as well, a story that probably you know uh, about seven days of creation. And that story also includes the creation of humankind. On the sixth day, one of the last things created, in that story, humans are made at the same time, man and woman. They're not, in the Garden of Eden story, uh, woman is made out of man. So we have a little bit more egalitarianism in that story. And they're made in the image of God. There's actually a phrase that's, um, that's used, uh, that comes out of that, that's used throughout the Christian tradition, imago dei. Does anyone know that phrase? It really, it means just literally that, in the image of God. And, and I would argue, and, and I hope some of you will come along with me on this argument anyway, I would argue that that idea, imago dei, in the image of God, is really part of, a, it can be seen as a forerunner of humanism, or connected to the idea of humanism. That, that built within that idea of being made in the image of God, there's a sense of a real dignity in, in humanity. You know, that's pretty amazing to be made in the image of God, to see yourself in that way. And I think you can see a connection there over a couple of thousand of years and the Enlightenment and, you know, a couple of other things, Revolutionary War, democracy. But in between, you can see a thread that goes through where human beings are held as precious. Now, we might articulate it differently, we might use different words, but that same thread runs through. And indeed, humanists in Enlightenment Europe, now remember that that term humanists used in Enlightenment Europe wasn't the kind of humanists that we think of now, but they they did use that term to refer to them. They were by and large Christian, but The reason they were called humanists is that they really worked to reclaim the dignity of humanity. After a few hundred years where the depravity of humanity had been kind of more, um, uh, more lifted up, when the depravity of humanity had been the focus, the humanists in Enlightenment Europe, still within the Christian tradition, sought to reclaim humans as dignified, as made in the image of God, and what that meant about the human being. So what about Judaism? We're done with Christianity now. That's all you need to know. What about Judaism? Well, obviously, those two creation stories we just talked about, they're from the Hebrew Bible. So within the Christian tradition, that that means they're from the Old Testament. Within the Jewish tradition, it's not old because there's not a new one. So it's just within the Bible. So those two creation stories, they're part of the Jewish tradition as well. The Garden of Eden story with the apple and the snake and the fallen is actually not as emphasized within the Jewish tradition. It's not referred to anywhere else in the Hebrew Bible. And the first clear reference to it actually comes from the Dead Sea Scrolls, which you might remember um, were from the second century before the Common Era. Um, Now, that's a long time ago, in my eyes, well over 2,000 years ago, but not really in the timeline of Judaism, actually. (laughs) It's sort of more recent in that timeline. The idea of the fall, scholars would argue, really comes from Greek and Platonic philosophy rather than being rooted in Jewish thought. And so I think in Judaism we see more of an emphasis on that other creation story. We also see, you know, that the piece that's pulled out is, remember we talked about uh, humankind being made from dust. The piece that's really pulled out and emphasized within Jewish thought is the breath of God, that ruach we talked about, that's a Hebrew word. The idea of, of the image of God, sort of, of, of the breath coming into, um, into humanity. But humans can't be all good, right? And, and there is a, a current within rabbinic tradition 
which I, I really like, the idea that humanity has both good and bad in them. And the, the words that are used are yetzer hatov and yetzer hara. So the good, yetzer hatov, and yetzer hara, bad as well, both existing within humankind. I'm going to do a quick flyby through Islam and Buddhism right now. Uh, and we're going to get more to Buddhism in particular next week, remember, so, so you know, don't feel too sad that it's a flyby. But uh, Islam has uh, many of the same stories as we talked about as Judaism and Christianity. Um, the Garden of Eden story is slightly different. It's actually a little bit more egalitarian. Um, within Islam as a whole, you know, as you may know, the word Islam means submission to God. There's a sense of humility um, that's really built into the, into the tradition. But there's also a strong thread of responsibility to humanity in all of these traditions. And we know that across world religions, right? You know, the golden rule, we talk about the golden rule being articulated in a thousand different ways. And that's true, that every or almost every religious tradition has this idea of our responsibility to each other. No matter how metaphysical the conversation gets, no matter how much there's involvement with the supernatural or a looking toward the next piece, there's also that piece of responsibility that human beings have toward each other. And that's very true in Islam. Islam has five pillars, five things that every Muslim must do. And one of them is almsgiving, support of each other, support within the community. And one of the key concepts within Islam is the ummah, the community of believers, you know, this, this group of people that are tied together. So I think we see there, too, a view of human nature as worthy of our respect and worthy of our responsibility to each other. And then in Buddhism, there are two major divisions in Buddhism. I'm not even going to go into what they are. But both of them see movement toward enlightenment as both possible and part of human responsibility. One of them would say that that movement is individual. Another would say that the movement is communal. So either we individually move toward enlightenment just kind of by ourselves on the side of a mountain, or we communally move toward enlightenment and it doesn't count unless we all get there together. But for both of them, even when we do it individually, it's because we're trying to move all of humanity there. So I think, again, you see the idea that humanity is worthwhile. You know, that our work is on behalf of humanity, that our responsibility is to each other. There is, I think, a thread in Buddhism that sees our physical human nature, our being here and now, as in some ways something to be escaped from. And you see that in Hinduism as well, the kind of cycle of rebirth as we continue on and ultimately try to actually get off the cycle. You don't want to stay on the cycle forever. Ultimately, you can get to the highest plane, which is humanity. So there you see that dignity of humanity. But then you're trying to get off entirely to get into nirvana or a sense of enlightenment and out of the cycle of rebirth. Okay, we're done with Islam and Buddhism now. That was quick. So how does all of that relate to us? Well, oh, someone took the clock down. That's unfortunate for you all. Um, <laughs> It's okay. It's okay. I only have a couple more pages of notes. Marty is showing me that he has maybe a timer on his iPhone. So if you hear beep, 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 I'll stop talking. No, we're, we're close. I mean, we're done with all the world religions. We're back to ethical culture. So that was it. 
So how does all of this relate to us, all of these different world religions, what they say about humanity and the complicated ways that they see human nature, right? It's not ever one or the other. It's always this complicated piece that weaves in and out of these huge religious traditions. We talked a little bit about the idea that imago dei can be seen as having a thread that ties in to inherent worth, to the dignity of the human, the dignity of the individual. But we've also talked about the fact that within Christianity, that wasn't always and isn't always what's really um, emphasized, what's really lifted up, the dignity of the individual. In fact, as some of you might know, Unitarianism, when it started in the 19th century, had a couple of heresies. One of the heresies was the idea of the unity of God instead of the Trinity, so, which ultimately moved to the idea that Jesus was a human, a teacher, uh, rather than part of God. But another heresy, a really big one, in fact, and one of the ways in which Unitarianism broke from its forerunner, which was really Calvinism, which had a strong emphasis on the depravity of the human being and therefore the need for a savior to bring us into right relationship. So the heresy of Unitarianism in that place was really the idea that every person had the potential for good. The way it was phrased by William Ellery Channing, uh, one of the founders of Unitarianism, was um, that each person had the potential to grow in likeness to God, had the potential for goodness within them. And that heresy has continued through the history of Unitarianism. The language has changed, of course, so that now there's language very similar to language ethical culture might use about the inherent worth of every person. And it was really, you know, Unitarianism was found in the early 19th century, that idea of the potential for good, really, again, lifting up the dignity of humanity, just the way Enlightenment humanists did, bringing it back into the center of the conversation, the potential for good in every human. That's really the water that Felix Adler was swimming in in 1876 when he founded Ethical Culture. He was briefly part of what was called the Free Religious Association, which had Unitarian ministers, ethical, Felix Adler, a couple of uh, rabbis, all of whom felt that religion without dogma and creed, religion that focused on our responsibility to each other as humans on the good of each person, that that was the kind of religion they wanted to be with. So it's sort of a multi-faith effort. And you can see the way he swam in that water with other folks who, like him, believed in the good in every person, the potential for good. Now, I think we ethical culturists have to be careful as well. In fact, progressive religious folks, anybody who really emphasizes that potential for good in every human, we've got to be careful because history has shown us, our day can show us, that human beings also have the potential for evil. We've talked about evil a little bit over the last couple of years here and talked about where it might come from and how it is that we respond to it. But I think what's clear is that it exists within us. Remember that idea from the rabbinic tradition, Yetzer HaTov and Yetzer HaRa, that both exist within who we are. Humanists, I think, can sometimes be accused of kind of glossing over the bad parts of human nature and really focusing on the good without giving weight to the evil, to the bad that can exist as well. And the key is that if, if we gloss over the evil, then we never turn ourselves toward fixing it. So acknowledging both within us, acknowledging, affirming that every human being has inherent worth but also has the, pot the potential 
to go awry. That allows us to really look at the human being as a full individual, to respond to the fullness of what we're capable of. And in some ways, I think, to be even more connected to each other, to be able to see that when someone makes a choice that seems abhorrent to me, that I have the, p the potential to make that choice as well, that given a different path in life or a different part of my day, I might have done the same thing. And so to be able to hold each other accountable, but always within that sense of relationship. You know, the pendulum can swing too far in both directions, and we see that throughout world religions and within any religious tradition. S seeing humans as only evil, seeing humans as only good. The key, I think, is to find the balance in the middle. Hanging on always to that sense of the worth in every person. Whatever actions they might have taken, to hold on to that kernel of worth. And that's really, I think, where ethical culture can speak most strongly and passionately. I talked in the very beginning about public policy, about the ways that our views of human nature can shape how we are in the world. And I want to speak really specifically to one, one place where I think that's true, and that's the arena of justice. How we respond when people, you can use the phrase make mistakes, when people break the law, when people do things that are really abhorrent, that really go against kind of what we as a community value and say is right. I believe that if we have a theology or a philosophy of human nature that's rooted too strongly in the depravity of human nature, we have a tendency to, to go toward what I would call the retributive justice system, which is actually the penal justice system, right? Not, not so different from how America exists today. That if you do wrong, you get punished, that you're not really, you know, that, that there isn't a, a real sense of the possibility of getting better, and that some folks are seen as wrong from the start, that rather than creating environments where they can flourish, we set limits and boundaries and wait for them to mess up so that we can lock them away. Now I think if you look at the justice system from from the sense of the deep worth of every person, both the potential for good in every person and, and this is the trickier part, the worth that exists even when they make mistakes, the worth that is there even when they've done something wrong, that we can call that action wrong but acknowledge the worth of the person. I think then you start to get interested in what's called the restorative justice system. The idea that what we're looking for when we seek justice is restoration of wholeness. The individual's wholeness, bringing them back into right relationship with themselves, and the community's wholeness. How do we look at justice from the sense of being able to create wholeness? Now it doesn't mean that when people do wrong things we don't have consequences. I mean, you know, believing in the inherent worth of every person doesn't mean that we believe in the worth of every behavior or every action. But it means that when we look at justice, we're trying to move toward wholeness. And I want to just kind of, this is the um, brought to you by sponsorship advertisement of my platform which is that the American Ethical Union has an assembly every June. Some of you have been to it. It's in places all over the country. This June, the assembly will be in Albany, New York, which actually happens to be my hometown. It's a great place to visit. You'll love it. It's cooler than Washington in June. 
But the reason that I, that I want to bring it up right now is that one whole day of that assembly is actually focused on the justice system, on the ways that the justice system in America works and the ways that it doesn't work, and the possibility of reforming the justice system, looking both at some of the racial aspects of the justice system in America, looking at how we treat people when they come out of the justice system and they try to get integrated back into society. All of those aspects, there's an incredible lineup of panelists and speakers, folks who work within the justice system, folks who themselves have been within the justice system, who have been incarcerated, and, and really looking at how public policy can shape and change. And what I want to say is that I think we're drawn to that. I think that the movement as a whole is looking at that really because of our deep belief in the worth of every human being. That you can see so easily the line from that belief to justice work. It's not about wanting to get something better just for the sake of getting it better. It's because it's so integral to who we are. I think, too, you see that with, with folks who do visits within the justice system. You know, this society has had a history um, in the 70s of working with, with folks who are incarcerated. There was a prison art show here, um, really, and other societies as well with prison ministry programs. I think you can see there the idea of, of a group of people who believe so deeply in the worth of every person that they're unwilling to ever give up. That even when people have made mistakes, we see that there's a person there with worth at their center who deserves relationship, who deserves community, who deserves to be kind of called back into the community of humanity. So I want, I guess, as I close, I want to challenge us in two ways. I want to challenge us to be people who so believe in the worth of every person, who so live that out in our lives, that that's how we're known, that when people see us, they recognize us as someone who must believe deeply in the worth of every person, in the value, in the good found in human nature. And I also want to challenge us, and I want to challenge us to do this over the next couple of weeks in this series, to both notice when other religions don't do that, and to notice when they do. To notice when our connection with another religion really serves to feed both of us, when we can see that thread that runs through. I want to close then with words from John Lovejoy Elliott, an ethical culture leader who worked in the early 20th century agitating on behalf of settlement houses and those they served, and who actually lived in the settlement houses so that he could be with the people that he loved. He wrote, The test as to whether people are religious has always been whether they did or did not believe in God. Now I should say there is a deeper test than that, and that is the belief in human beings, the belief in the spiritual nature of people. I have known many good people who believed in God. I have known many good people who did not believe in God. But I have never known a human being who was good, who did not believe in people. <laughs>